let me just say this about who you're going to hear today. Most of you know him, you know about him, you've either seen him speak um, at ORU or you've seen him speak somewhere. How many of you, by just a show of hands, have never seen or heard Mark Green speak before? Okay, wow. So more than half of y'all in the room, um, you're in for a treat. But the thing I love about Mr. Green, Mr. Mark Green, is that he is uh, an incredible friend and not just an incredible businessman, not just an incredible speaker uh, with an incredible legacy, but he's, he's real, he's genuine, he's authentic, he's friendly off the stage, he's friendly to whoever he meets. Um, and he has such a, a kind heart uh, for all generations, for all people that he impacts. Um, and I remember meeting him right when my father passed. I remember him being at the funeral and just turning around and seeing him on that row behind me next to other pastors and his encouragement, his prayer. Um, I remember standing over here when they dedicated this street, the name of the street, Billy Joe Doherty Circle, and just talking to him again. But his encouragement has changed my life. Um, I've told him this before. His encouragement came during a season when I was so discouraged. And can I just tell you all something, business people? Um, encouragement is free. And you can give that out every single day. And I'll tell you this, the encouragement you give to someone who's discouraged could mean everything to them five, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road. They'll never forget it. And so I think just in the same way that he spent time to encourage myself, my brother, other people, um, God has people for us to encourage. That's really what I want you to know today is that um, this isn't just about Mark Green. This is about the principles that Mart has practiced, that all of us can practice, that all of us can implement into our lives. And so, um, Mart, I just want to say thank you, and we are so honored to have you here. So would you come up on stage, and would you stand to your feet and give a huge welcome and appreciation to Mark Green. Thank come you, Paul. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, y'all can be seated. We're going to do a, a short interview at first, and then we're going to jump into um, his word for you today. So, Mark, this is a time where we also talk about leadership, and we ask questions about, you know, how can we grow as leaders? One of the questions I've asked often, because we have a multi-generational uh, uh, group of people here this morning, is yeah. what would you say to 20-year-old Mark, um, and I don't know how <laughs> old you are today, but you don't have to tell us, but when you were 20, or 19 or 20, what, what do you look back at now and go, I wish I could tell him that. Um, I wish that I could say this to him today, some of the ways that he thought or felt in that season. What would you say to that 19-year-old you? First, I'd say, Amanda told me these were going to be easy questions. Amanda, <laughs> these aren't easy questions. These are deep. <laughs> A 20-year-old, you know, all right, you owe me now. So uh, let's see. That was five years ago. Now, I'm 58. I just turned 58 recently, and so what would I say to 20-year-old Mart? Um, I guess something I've learned more recently comes out of 1 John 2 and 16. And 1 John 2 and 16 tells us there's only three things that Satan has. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. That's the only three tricks, really, Satan has. And so, and Satan created nothing. He's not an equal. It's not like Satan and God were equal. He's under, right? He's under the feet. And so he had to take something that was God intended for good and make it bad. And so you think about uh, the lust of the, the eyes, and that would be possessions. 
You know, there's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with the home, nothing wrong with the car, nothing wrong with the possessions, the things we want, until they start owning us and they become the lust of the eyes. And so I thought, well, what's the antidote? What did Christ mean for us to do with these possessions? And I think it would be generosity, you know. So if you show me somebody who's generous, they don't have to worry about that one. They've defeated Satan. They don't worry about getting stuff. They can barely hold on to what they got for giving it away all the time. And that was my grandmother's story. Incredible giver. Um, and then you got the pride of life. And so what was the neutral of that? And uh, it would be possessions, I mean, positions and power. And there's nothing wrong. You know, somebody had to organize to today. Amanda helped us. You helped us. I mean, if it wasn't for those positions and power, we wouldn't have, anybody would have been here. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But when it becomes the pride of life and it becomes who we are in our identity, Satan's taken something that was very meant for the good. So what would be the positive? What would I hope to be would be humility. You, somebody, you show me somebody has humility and they're not fighting the pride thing all the time because that's not their, their, their bent. And then uh, the lust of the flesh would be our pleasures. And God gave us pleasures in life, our sexuality, food, the pleasures of life. God gave us those. Those are gifts. But Satan took them and just twisted them a little bit. And so I thought, well, what, what's the antidote to that? What did God want us to do? And I think he wanted to live us a life of integrity, you know. And so I say, you go to school for the ABCs, but uh, the GH is an I's, the generosity, humility, integrity. So you give me somebody with those three, and Satan's kind of been dethroned. So anyway, uh, that's what I'd have told the 20-year-old because I just figured that out recently. <laughs> Come on, that's powerful. What would you say is leadership? In your eyes, you go, that right there, that's, that's a leader. Um, when you see it, when you see someone doing something or you see yourself doing something, you're like, that's real leadership right there. Well, leadership means there's followership. You know, people are following it. So um, I think it's somebody that uh, has a vision and that can cast that vision and people want to follow and be a part of that. Now, there's leadership, just sheer power. You know, some people leave because of sheer power and you have to follow them and all that stuff. There's also the uh, leadership of influence, you know, and so that's even more powerful to me is when somebody has just the influence. They don't have to. They're not being paid by that person or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's somebody who has a collaborative spirit and would be generous, humility, integrity because we, we want to follow those people. We kind of see them because we all struggle with it. I mean, we all struggle to be generous, right? We all are concerned. There's, there's fear of what we're going to have for tomorrow. We all do, you know, the humility, the pride, those deals. So I think when people have those gifts, uh, they're very attractive, and people want to, to, to follow somebody who's going to lead them in a place and has a vision, know where they're going, and is clear with that focus. They're not changing it all the time. And, you know, for me, that would be somebody who's God called. If God calls somebody, he's going to provide for them. So, so good. Um, what would you say, like, if you were speaking to your staff and you had your whole staff in a room, what would be some of the key things you would remind them every year to say, this is the kind of culture we want to have? What would be an important key principle you want your staff to carry? Yeah, I mean, I'm in the retail business, so um, the, at the top of the list is don't forget we're in this for the customers. And so for us, it's what we call the customers retail. So how do we, how do we become customer-centric, make sure that all of our principles are that way? How are we thinking about the customer? What are they thinking about? And all that stuff. It's so easy to get tied up in rules and all this kind of stuff. And so for me is how do you become more customer-centric? You know, what are they need? What are the new needs? You know, as time changes and all that kind of stuff. So uh, for me, the culture I'm trying to build is, is which would be serving. You know, how do we serve? What does it look like to serve? Um, and so I think that would. I love it. I love it. Okay. I well, won't keep asking you more intense question. questions. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, one question I think is really important because every time I've connected with you, 
and every time I hear you speak, you are a man of the word of God. And um, wh why do you feel like that's so important for business people to be in their Bible and to be studying God's word? I mean, your family has dedicated their lives uh, really to getting the scripture, the word of God to the world. Can we give a big hand to the whole Green family for what they've done with the Museum of the Bible, all of the stuff that you guys have done, it's incredible. M most people don't know all the behind-the-scenes stories of um, even just, you know, working with Version, working with Rob Hoskins, and so many organizations to get the word out. But why is that important for business people? Well, for our family, the reason it's important, it would be for business people, is uh, my grandmother really just kind of drilled it into my dad. It's only what la only eternity matters, you know? And so let's start with eternity. Let's think 5,000 years from now. Let's start there, and let's back into this thing, you know? So what's going to last for eternity? There's only a couple of things that I find in the Bible that last in eternity. Your soul will last forever. The moment a baby was conceived, it's an eternal being. It lasts forever, all right? And God's Word lasts forever. All right, so those are the two things you can take with you, right? You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. God's word's going ahead, and so we've always said, let's think eternal. We're business people. Think on the end goal. What's the end goal, and uh, what's going to last? What's going to matter five thousand years from now? And so to make sure that God's word gets in people's souls, man, what's better than that? Those two things, and so uh, and then the personally, obviously, that's provided uh, through God's word. So is there a scripture that's like? your staple scripture that you, you really like to go back to in your life? Yeah, I end all my emails with this book is alive, and it's usually 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3 from the message version. It says, your very lives is a letter that anybody can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, not chisel and stone, but carved in human lives, and you publish it. So I want my life to be the living letters, because there's a lot of people who don't read scripture, don't have access to scripture, and, and don't do it. So I am the scriptures for them, you know. You know, obviously, living out my life, drawing them to Christ, not to me. I don't want them worshiping me. How did they? How do I draw them to Christ? And so, how can I be the living letters? And so, that's Come a verse. On. That's a. This book is alive. So. That inspires me. That inspires <laughs> yeah, yeah. all of us. Yeah. How many of you just are inspired by their story and by his life? Every time. Okay. One of the questions I asked you, and I promise, I promise, I'm not going to ask you too much more. But one of the questions I ask you when I see you is, what are a few books you would recommend to me? For me to grow as the leader I'm called to be. Um, you gave me one book reference uh, a couple years ago wow. that really dealt with Good. the competitive spirit um, and learning to celebrate people that you're tempted to compete with. It was such a powerful mm. uh, book that you called that you really encouraged me to read. But there's other books. So share a few books that you feel like would be good for business leaders here that have impacted you. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm 58 years old, read 900 books. Now I've got to go back and get my memory. The Phil Vischer's book, uh, Me, Myself, and Bob. Phil Vischer was the inventor of VeggieTales. And so in the story, he talks about Dan. He got down to his last $5. He's walking out of the house to go buy dog food with the last $5. And it wasn't a great conversation with his wife, you know, because you're, what are you going to do and all that stuff. And he's drawing these, he, he was drawing uh, candy bars and stuff. And she said, don't do that. Use vegetables. So uh, she helped him go to Veggie Tales and use vegetables because parents might like vegetables better than candy bars. Well, you know, as their animation, and um, and he went from having absolutely nothing to unbelievable success. Veggie Tales was uh, tremendous success years ago, and then he wound up losing his company. So he went from nothing to a lot to nothing. So we hear a lot of stories from nothing to lots, but from nothings to lots to nothing again. And what lessons did he learn? 
through that process. And so a lot of times we don't learn through our successes. We learn a whole lot more through our failures. So I journal every day, and I type them up. And I used to go back at the end of the month, and I still do, and I cut out my highlights. And so I cut those and put them in another document, okay? Organized, kind of. And then I, then I realized, you know what? My lowlights, I learned more. So every month I cut out my lowlights. And so I have a lowlights document and a highlights document. And so, um, so that's one book. Another book that meant personally, that's more of a, just a fun business book, uh, is Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. It's been out for a long, long, long time, but it's still phenomenal, phenomenal principles that I try to get business people to read and stuff. So those will be a couple quick. Come on, those are so good. Well, I'll let you take it from here, but I just want to say thank you again. Uh, like I said, it was 10 years ago that my father passed, but the, yeah. you know, the years that you That's stepped in to ORU in 2007 um, and that fall, 12 years ago, this, this month, 12 yeah. years ago, yeah. the conversation you had with Billy Joe and then from there with wow. the, the board of regents at ORU, that university wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for your family getting involved. So we say thank you. We'll let you take it from here. All right. Thank you, Paul. Wow. Honored, honored to be here today. So proud of Paul and what he's done here and what Victory has done. And I'll weave that story back in here in a second, so I'll talk about Victory and, and over you just a little bit. Um, I always like to try to get – I'm a simple person, so I like to get things down to simple things. So when I speak, I try to get it down to – can I get it down to one word? You know, and so the word that I chose for today is uh, seeds. And uh, uh, we have a slide that has seeds on it. You guys know what a seed looks like. Seeds are very, very small. They're so small. I thought, well, I better have a, a slide of it. But man, when you think about the potential of a seed, um, and so that's what I'm going to talk about today. And there's a verse, and it's on the next slide. It's Genesis 1, 11 and 12. I chose the living translation this particular time. It says, then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. This book is alive. But I love this seed-bearing plant that grows seed-bearing fruit. Most things, when you use them, you use them up. They're over, but not a seed. Because a seed you plant, and gut, what do you get? You get more seeds. So it's an incredible concept, and it's within the first 11 verses of God's uh, word. And so, um, so I... I, um, I like to go back and know the seed of things. If I get involved with something, I want to know the seed. I want to know the why, why to get started. So I'm going to go through a few things in my life that I've come across. We're going to have to go on a pretty quick journey here that, uh, and what the seeds of those things were. And so the first one is Hobby Lobby. What is the seed of Hobby Lobby? And so um, Hobby Lobby started in, got my little bag here, <clears throat> 1970. My dad came to me with wood that looked just like this, okay? He took four of these and, and would give them to me. I was nine years old, 1970. He says, I tell you what, son, if you'll glue these four corners together, I'll give you seven cents per frame, all right? I was buying baseball cards at the time. My dad didn't like buying baseball cards. My friend up the street's dad did buy his baseball cards, so I didn't like that fact, but that was what was happening. He's got more baseball cards than I did, so we could trade cards. You know, the numbers help you, all right? So if you got more cards, you got better cards to trade, right? And so I started gluing these frames when we were nine years old, me and my brother. And 
My sister was only four, so she got out of the deal. But uh, so my dad went um, to get the most money he could, which was six hundred dollars. So he borrowed six hundred dollars in nineteen seventy. Bought a chopper. The chopper was what cut this wood. It was nine foot sticks, and somebody had to cut the wood. And actually, it was the blind man who cut the wood. And so he worked for piecework. And so he had braille. He would fill on the chopper put his foot up on a, about three foot and just yank it down and that force on two blades would make these cuts, you know. And so then we would get them and we would glue them and then my mom picked us up after school and went down to several palsy and they glued the frames at me and my brother really couldn't keep up with them. And so, uh, so that's how it started. So for two years, that's what we did. We made frames, we sold them to other people. Now my dad was a <clears throat> in the retail business and that's what we wanted to get back into. He just, for $600, you can't open a retail shop, you know. There's no, you gotta buy some inventory somewhere. And so we sold enough, and so in 1972, um, my dad was working for a company. Some of you guys will remember if you're from Oklahoma long enough, TGNY. Some of you may remember TGNY. The TGNY is why I live in Oklahoma City. They were based, their home office was in Oklahoma City. I was born down a lot in Oklahoma. Uh, my mom's from Althus, Oklahoma. We moved up in 1970, uh, I mean, the 1963, uh, working for TGNY. So my dad worked for TGNY. He's working for TGNY. And it got to the point that uh, he only got two days a month off. He got every other Sunday. Now, they didn't open until one on Sundays. My dad always was able to go to church, but he only got two days. A, he got every other Sunday off. He would go to church on the other two Sundays and go straight to work. Well, it became a work-life balance issue for my dad. When you're working 70, 80 hours a week all the time, you're on call all the time. He thought, man, there's got to be a, a better way. So he added more to it, right? So that's why we honor my mom and why women are champions in our business because without my mom, I wouldn't be here, you know, because she made the sacrifices. She worked for the first five years without pay. My mom never was paid to work, you know, so me and my brother got paid. And we actually say we're the founders of Hobby Lobby because we're the first two paid employees, you know, right? I mean, come on. Whoever starts it gets paid because dad's not getting paid, mom's not getting paid. And so we're getting paid, you know, so who started this thing? So... Uh, you guys figure that part out. So one of the seeds of Hobby Lobby is work-life balance, okay? So it's why we still close at 8 o'clock. It's why we close on Sundays, um, because we want to offer work-life balance. The same reason we want it for our family, we want it for your family too. Matter of fact, when we bring our, CEO, our, our guys in, many of them have come from Walmart, Home Depot, whatever, and have worked lots and lots of hours. And we say, now, if you're going to work 60 or 70 hours, go home. We don't want you here. We do not want to be a part of tearing your family apart. Your family is more important than this job. And then we tell that to all of our managers. So go home. Yes, there's seasons, there's Christmas, there's time. Life gets tough, retails a lot of hours and all that stuff. If you're doing that all the time, you didn't do what we asked you to do. There's really one thing, build an organization. If you build an organization, you get to go home. If you build this whole thing on yourself, you're going to work yourself to death and we prefer not to be a part of that. And so work-life balance is one of the seeds of Hobby Lobby. The other would be generosity. My dad's mother, Marie Lark uh, Green, uh, was a tent revivalist with her dad in the 1930s. So my grandmother and her dad would pitch tents and go around and preach. And so she was a preaching machine. And so one day this young man walks in unexpectedly, was not a believer, came from a non-believing home, heard her preach and gave his heart to two people that day, one to Jesus and one to Marie. And so he pursued her, they got married, and they pastored little Pentecostal churches for all their career, all their lives, co-pastored churches, never had more than 50, had seven children in seven years. And I said, Dad, there's no way, seven children, seven years, you can't even physically do that. And I thought, oh my gosh, all my 
yeah, they're all a year apart. Wow, I never, I never stopped and thought, you know, how old all my uncles and aunts were, you know. And so, uh, and one of my aunt's children, Chad, Chad's here somewhere, so I have a relative somewhere in the room. And so, uh, so anyway, one died in, in birth, soon after birth. And so when both of your parents are pastors, guess what they want? They want pastors or missionaries. So it was kind of missionary, pastor, and pretty much everything else is kind of down here. I mean, that's just, that's it, Right. Because, right, she's an eternity, eternity gal, right? It's all about eternity. And so for her, you know, what else is eternity? You know, only what's done for Christ will last, you know. So my dad just uh, didn't. All my aunts and uncles either were preachers, revivalists, you know, and all that kind of stuff. He was the one that felt, you know, second class. And so he would say that uh, he would come home and at TGNY, he was the youngest manager ever at TGNY. The youngest manager they ever had was my dad. And so he'd come home, Mom, I'm the youngest manager at TGNY. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, okay. <laughs> he was the youngest supervisor ever at TGY. He'd come home, hey, Mom, I'm the youngest supervisor. Only what's done for Christ will last. So my dad says, if I had to come home and said, Mom, I am the president of the United States of America. She said, only what's done for Christ will last, okay? So that's where that eternity thing kind of got drilled into our family and stuff, and I'm glad it did. And so, but she would sew little doilies, and I bring these for young people, <laughs> Because they thought, they, well, yeah, they saw little doilies, and uh, my grandfather would say, now, Marie, why are you sewing those doilies? She says, well, I, I want to have a missions offering. And she said, he said, no, I already gave him the missions offering for us. No, 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 I want my own missions offering. And so my dad says, if nobody bought my grandmother's doily, she bought her own doily just so she'd have a missions offering and something to give. Back in the days, so I don't know if many of you will remember, know this, but they used to be called a pounding. So if you didn't have tithes, on first Sunday, you'd bring a pounding, which would be the fruits and vegetables that you grew in your farms. And you brought that, and that's what you gave to your pastor. So that's what my dad had for supper, right? So whatever you happened to grow and whatever crops were good this year is what they had. Or any gift that you gave my grandmother. Christmas time, birthday, whatever the gift was, even though she had seven kids, a church of 50, one-bedroom home, you can figure it out, um, she always paid tithes on it. She thought, oh, no, I'm supposed to pay tithes on my increase, not just my money. So she wasn't asking, is it pre-tax or post-tax? When do I pay tithes? She's adding on. You see what I'm saying? And so that's where generosity became. And part of what Hobby Lobby is all about, it wasn't for us to make a lot of money. God's blessed us great. You know, we kept our salaries a long time ago. We, what thrills us? Why do we open another store? You know, where I'm not going to make any more money because I can give more money away. You see what I'm saying? And so... But, and we made a, the gift over you. It was the largest gift by far that we'd ever made, of course. And so I said, okay, Dad, have we outgiven Grandma now? No, no, no way. We've always given out of my excess. My, my mother gave what she didn't have and stuff like that. So our belief is that generosity is not the size of the gift. It's the size of the sacrifice. And so I still haven't sacrificed like my grandmother has. And so we're still trying. But uh, she set a really, really, really high bar. ORU would be the next seed that I'd like to talk about. And uh, it was, as, as Paul talked about 12 years ago, and I honor Billy Joe and Sharon and what they did for ORU and, and their role even in our family being involved with ORU. I had met Billy Joe Doherty through uh, another project I had been involved with. And so he called me and just started talking. And so long story, I, don't, I won't go into all of that, but you guys know that we got involved. And so... Uh, January 2008, um, all of a sudden, I find myself in the position on the board chair at this university, you know, and I'm like, how did I get here? Well, we were driving up here, and I remember the, the deal, and we're like, okay, somebody's going to have to go on this board, and uh, we're like, okay, who went to college in the family? Uh, 
March, you went a semester, didn't you? So I'm the reigning champ in our family, right? <laughs> and we got eight. I got mom and dad who barely made, high, made it through high school. Now, mom made it well through high school. Dad, he says three Ds and three Fs somehow is a D minus in my high school, and I graduated, okay? And so, um, you know, my brother didn't go to college, my sister, their spouses. Geez, out of eight of us, I got one college semester. Okay, I, I, guess, I'm, I guess I get voted in. So, uh, and I tried everything I could to get off the board. You be the chair. No, you, no, no, you got us into this. You got to be the chair. No, no, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I didn't go to college. I'm not doing this. So anyway, next thing I know, I'm the board chair. So the next thing I know is I'm going to change the spiritual seed. I've been on campus at ORU a couple of times to go to a concert. I know maybe center. Never been in any of these buildings over here you know, at ORU back in 12 years ago when I came up here for the first time. So next thing I know, I'm the board chair. Oh, my gosh, how do we get from here to there? Well, we got to get really educated fast. So I read every book I could. Now, Oral was still alive. I could have asked him lots of questions. He's in California. I got to meet him at different times. But I just thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can find the seed of this place. I'm going to see if I can find the seed of this place. So read books. Um, and then I finally said, you know what? I bet that first chapel was important. If I was oral and I spent all that time building a university, I bet that first chapel will have a key, a clue for me. I'm going to go look. And, of course, they got incredible archives over there. You all have the first chapel? Yeah, we do. I'd like to have that. They had it. So I read that first chapel. And it was, the title of it was The Quest for the Whole Man. All right? And that's what oral has always been on. It's in its emblem, spirit, mind, and body. I mean, it's so obvious. But when you come in from the outside, you're just trying to figure this all out, you know, find the spiritual seed. And so that happened. I found this quest for the whole man. Then I was talking to Ralph Fagan, and I was up in his office, and they had just gotten this award. And so I'm thinking, okay, ORU has just been rated as not having good governance, not having good leadership, and not having good finances. That's not award-winning, folks, you know? That's something I avoid, to be honest with you, right? Especially if you're a donor. You don't say, my, is your governance not well? Is your leadership not well? And your finance not well? Oh, good. I'd love to be a part. You know, that doesn't happen that way, all right? So you're not award-winning. 2007, Chia, of all the universities in the country, ORU wins this award. The infrastructure for a culture of evidence. So what they are saying is the outcomes, not outputs. How many did you graduate, all that stuff. We, you can get all the numbers, right? It's outcomes. Who's putting out students who have a culture of evidence? And I said, Ralph Fagan, he was at the pro at that time. Ralph, how in the world, what, what, how, how does this happen? He says, Lamar, we actually assess five things at ORU. Okay, what do you assess? Spiritually alive, intellectually alert, physically disciplined, socially adept, professionally competent. You can get a 4.0 in all five of those areas. We do the best we can to assess every student to say, are they on a quest for wholeness? Back to Oral's deal. Oh, not only is that the original deal, we're winning awards during a very, very tough season of ORU's life, right? Because the faculty believed in the vision of ORU, and the faculty did their job world-class. That never skipped at ORU. Yes, behind the scenes, we had some issues with finances, those things. We all know those things. But what never skipped through all the years of ORU's history is the outcomes of our students. We put out some phenomenal students because we challenged them to be whole spirit, mind, body, socially, and all that stuff. And then I went to my first graduation. And at graduation of a student response, Jamie Weathers, of course, I've never met this young lady, gets up and gives a speech in five minutes that just blew me away. Um, I take it, show it a lot of times. Time doesn't allow it today. But anyway, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal speech about the whole person, the whole man, the whole woman. And it was just phenomenal. It just blew me away. So I chased her down. I said, who are you? I want to know your story. 
So I met Jamie for the first time, and I know the story I'm going to hear because my story is a story of legacy, right? Why am I who I am today? Because I had a grandmother. I had parents. Legacy is part of my story, and I accepted that legacy. I didn't have to. I could have revolted against my legacy, but I accepted my legacy. So I'm talking to Jamie. I'm thinking, man, that's going to be a great legacy story, man. I want to hear about her grandma and all that stuff. And she told me her story, and it's a horrific story about her father left her, deserted her. She wrote letters to her father. He returned every single one of them three years later. She had no idea her father wasn't reading the letters, and she got them all back. Man, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine that. So how'd you get here, Jamie? Well, I knew some more of you grads, and they were whole people. And I wanted to be whole. So I went to ORU so I could be made whole. I said, well, in four years, it happened, girl. You're amazing. God has healed you, and now he's going to use you to heal others. So Jamie's out there in New York City doing exactly what God called her to do. So I said, wow. reason she came to ORU is because we have got to be sure there's whole people at ORU and continue to do that. So then at the time, Mark Rutland's the president. I said, Mark, who are we giving all of our scholarships to? Who gets the scholarship? Who are we recruiting? Who do we have come to ORU? And of course, the answer is you got ACT scores and you got sports. You got athletes. And there's others, but at a high level, that's what happens. That's what all colleges do. Let's get the smart kids and let's get the athletes. And they have different departments. So I said, what if, what if, we, what if we went after kids who are on a quest for wholeness already? What if we found those kids that will make sure that Jamie comes to ORU? I don't, not every kid at ORU is going to be a star quest for wholeness. I hope some of the most broken kids in the country come to ORU and get their wholeness. Because <laughs> this is the place, it's a safe place if you're broken. This is the place you want to come because we're going to surround you. We've got to go get those. Where are the very best in the country? So within hours, we're talking to Nancy Brainerd, and within minutes, Nancy's got the program up and going. Nancy's a go-getter. You know? The next thing I know, we've got the Quest for Whole Person Scholarship. And so as many of you may well re realize, we actually assess the students in these five areas as best we can. We interview them one-on-one -on -one and all that stuff. We're not doing just ACT scores anymore. We're looking at you near on a Quest for Wholeness. So early on, I got to meet one of the... Uh, the winners, Esmeralda was the winner of the Quest Whole Person Scholarship, young Hispanic lady from Chicago. And so I said, okay, Esmeralda, tell me your story. Oh, well, I live in Chicago. Uh, my mom's a single mom. My, my mom then had another child. My brother is about 12 years younger than me, so we kind of tag team. I work nights. She works days. I go to school. I watch him. She, you know, so you're kind of starting to figure this thing out. Okay, life's kind of tough for this young lady. Uh, she said, yeah, and I was going to go to college, and I... Finally bought me a little computer. She worked at TJ Maxx. I bought me a little computer. I filled out my application to go to the University of Chicago. I didn't want to leave mom. I wanted to be close. And uh, right before I could send it in, somebody stole my computer. Oh. Then come to find out her dad, who's not in the family, had stole her computer. And then guilted her for turning him in, for stealing the computer, for mom turning the computer. You know, so you just kind of this warped sense of, you know, so, oh my gosh. She says, but somebody in my church nominated me for this whole person scholarship thing at ORU. And the next thing I know, I'm at ORU. I said, oh, what do you study? Nursing. Oh, why do you want to be a nurse? Because we can't afford my, for my little brother to go to a nurse. So we just do what we can. We pray for him and all that stuff. So I want to be a nurse someday so I can take care of my little brother and others like him. Now tell me that's not the student you wanted at ORU. She didn't have the great, best grade point. 
average, to be honest with you, because she's working nights, going to school days, and trying to take care of her brother. But she was on a quest for wholeness. And we want you at ORU. And she now works here in Tulsa as a nurse. And so we're proud of Esmeralda. But that's, and now we use the tagline, whole leaders for the whole world. And that kind of amplifies that. Uh, another one on process is Oklahoma City. That's I live in Oklahoma City. And uh, so my son, Tyler, chose to move from the suburbs. I moved out to the suburbs. He wanted to live in the inner city. He wanted to live where the broken people live. And uh, so he has a great love for our city. And I've learned a lot through my son. So this is in the works. And so um, I heard a few years ago, a, a man had set three goals for my city, Oklahoma City. I said, really? Well, who sets goals for the city? The mayor, I guess, might set goals for the city. I don't know. I never set goals for my city, you know, but this guy set goals. And he set three goals. One, he wanted Whole Foods to come to Oklahoma City. We didn't have Whole Foods in Oklahoma City. And not only did we get Whole Foods, this Whole Foods is located right across the street from his business, okay? He was a businessman. <laughs> Some of you will have heard of Aubrey McClendon. He has passed since then. Uh, but Whole Foods is right across the street from Chesapeake. Two, he wanted a world-class boat district. If you come to Oklahoma City and go downtown in a boat district, the, the, the Olympians train in the kayaking in Oklahoma City. We have a world-class boat district in Oklahoma City. Come enjoy that at sometime. And then third... He wanted the NBA team. Well, come on. I mean, Oklahoma, only professional team we got. Well, I better, I don't want to divide the crowd here. So, <laughs> yeah, so just, so we have a professional team now, guys. And so it's called uh, the Thunders, you guys may know. And so, uh, and we had, and I thought, wow. And I'm, I'm sure, Aubrey, I never got a chance to talk to him, you know, because I heard this right before he passed. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't have said, hey, I did it by myself. But he, he took a stake and claimed, put it in the ground, and it rallied people. You talked about leadership, Paul. That's, that's leadership. He put that in the ground. Other people said, I want that in my town too. I'll help you. I'll do this. Here's my part of doing that. But it was vision that he had. I thought, well, who's going to do that spiritually for my city? Who's going to take a flag and say, I want Oklahoma City to stand for this? Okay. So we have a guy in our town who's trained 400 businessmen and women. He takes a nine-month course, and basically it's for businessmen and women, and it's basically after nine months is your 24-7 ministry, folks. Okay? Your 24-7. It's not divided, you know, ministers and pastors. Your 24-7. All, everybody in this room, your 24-7. So that's kind of what they teach you. So I went to Wes. Wes, you have 400 men and women you've trained over the last 10 years. Go plant a spiritual flag in our city, and those 400 will follow you. He goes, no, I'm a convener. I don't plant flags. So what do you mean you don't plant flags? Just plant the flag and get the people going, you know. You no, know, you need to do that. Or somebody like you, I'm thinking, no, no, I'm trying to get this on your side of the table, right? I'm busy, all right? You, you take this, you know. So at least sent me on a journey, and then the journey was, no surprise, what is the spiritual seed of my city? So I go back to the same guy. He goes, I don't know, Mark. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I mean, this guy loves Oklahoma City. He's an Oklahoma City nut. Nobody's asked me the spiritual seed of my city. I said, well, I know. And maybe cities don't have them. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. And so he said, but my friend just wrote a book on the early history of Oklahoma. I said, okay. I said, about the spiritual, no, Mark. Nobody writes about the spiritual seed of Oklahoma. Um, but he's a Christian. All right, good enough. Early history. So I go down to Barnes & Noble. I'm just down the street from Barnes & Noble. I go down there. I pick up this book. It's called The Oklahomans by John Dwyer, The Story of Oklahoma and Its People, Volume 1, Ancient to Statehood. Okay, so this is going to take me up to statehood. So this is, 
All right. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's a 300-page history book. All right. Now, I love school. My dad hated school. I love school. But history books, I mean, I don't want to read a three. Just give me the bottom line. I'm a business guy. What's the spiritual seed? You're right. Seed. Easy. This. All right. Well, I guess I'll at least respect it enough. I bought the book. I might as well start. So, all right, let's go to paragraph one of chapter one. Before the trail of tears, before the war between the states, before the land runs in statehood and dust bowl, before world wars and oil booms and bust, and the Oklahoma City bombing and more tornadoes, we about wore me out just for the first part here, you know. There were others who came to present day Oklahoma. It seems the Sooner State has always been the land of the second, third, and last chance people from other places. Something just resonated in my spirit. I mean, even you hear it, you say, wow. And then later in here, he says, so then I just went to the back and looked up Oklahoma City. <laughs> so I could just find the Oklahoma City parts. You know, I didn't read the whole book. <laughs> but he did say this, Oklahoma City did not begin, nor would it ever be like any other city. Okay, everybody likes to be unique. What's unique about my city? So I started thinking, oh yeah, I went to school. I did listen in class. It was a land run. Interesting. April the 22nd, 1889, there was 10 little shanties in what's now Oklahoma City because the railroad went through Oklahoma City, and so there was these 10 little shanties. They shot that gun off, and between 30 and 50,000 people rushed my city where I live. It started overnight. Now, who goes to a land run? You've got to understand when you go to a land run, uh, there's no... Uh, nothing. There's no law. There's no houses. There's no... Who goes to land run? Winners don't go to land runs, right? If you're winning, you're staying home. Why would you get your family to pack your bags and go to land run? You wouldn't do it. And people who want other people to do things for them don't go to land runs. They're always expecting somebody else to do something for them. The pioneer spirit who need a second, third, and last chance people planted my city. So I believe that's the seed of my city. So I'm chasing that seed even as we speak to say, who in my city is ministering to second, third, and last chance people? And I'm stealing from all of you in a holistic way. We're actually using the word flourish. I want to build a city where people can flourish. Now, I can't make everybody flourish, but I'd like to provide the environment that all people can flourish. Can all the children in Oklahoma City flourish at the same level right now? They cannot. We have children who are going to schools who are not the same as other kids who are going to phenomenal schools with all kinds of deals. How do we help everybody flourish in our city? I don't know, but I'm on that journey, and that's what we're doing with my son. And so we want to see our city flourish. Um, yeah, the next slide. Sorry, this is... Um, the way I have to draw it up. And so don't try to read this slide. It's, it's, a, it's a wet cement. But there's a line there that says trusted relationships. Relationship is what life is all about. But structure is what makes it work. All right? So, yes, I'm all about relationship. And, yes, you need to build a relationship. But we can't go to the coffee shop all the time and just talk. We've got to do something. All right? So you've got to get that balance. Okay? And so, but anyway, so I actually believe Scripture and Prayer is the foundation Someday, and I stole this idea from ORU, this Flourish OKC Council. We actually at ORU have what's called a, uh, 
University Planning Council. It has six members from the board of trustees, six from the office of the president, six from the faculty, and they are the one casting vision. So it's the idea, how do you bring everybody together to get buy-in? All right? Oklahoma City, we're getting ready to release 800 prisoners on November the 1st, right? We're number one in the world, not the United States, the world in incarceration in Oklahoma, as you all well probably know. And so we incarcerate more people, 150 around the world, 150 every 100,000 are incarcerated, three, uh, I think five to 600 in, uh, 300, 600 in America, we're like 1,200 in, in, in Oklahoma. So we're the world, we incarcerate more people. Now some of these have been misdemeanor crimes, crimes that weren't, so all this kind of stuff. So when you release 800 prisoners, they need some help, all right? And churches are rallying. But what if someday I had a flourish council that represented and you'll see these five boxes. I'm sorry. you got Church United. We don't have Church United in Oklahoma City. We do not have all of our Church United. We're trying to do that. How do we get to Church tonight so we can make one phone call and we're all there? Now, if there's a disaster, we show up, okay? Then you got Givers United. Where are all the givers? I don't have all the I'm finding all the givers in Oklahoma City, bringing them together, okay? Salt, that's the business community. Next generation, you got to get the keys in the young people's hands, all right? Our world changed so dramatically, guys, it's too heavy for us old dogs, all right? So I say, give them the keys. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to take you to places you've never been. You know what they're going to do? They're going to get mud all over their boots. They're going to walk right into your living room, right across that white per Persian rug that's so precious to you with their mud on their boot and get it right all over there. Go buy a vacuum cleaner. Okay? Just buy a vacuum cleaner. Just expect it and have it ready because they're going to do it. They're taking you to places you've never been. Support them. Get behind them. They're digital already. They're collaborative already. They're global already. That just comes with the young generation, right? You have to convince me to get there. That's too much time, too much effort. That's why all the good ideas are coming from the young people. Uber came from young people. Amazon, young people. Airbnb, young people. The Bible app, young people. All those were done by somebody under 40, all right? So give them the keys and get on their bus. Don't ask young people to come get on your bus. Find them and go get on their bus. So I'm proud of Paul and what he's done here. So anyway, so you got the next gen, and then you got wisdom. Yes, I still need wisdom. In Oklahoma City, I didn't know this. We have a group called Fourth Quarter. So maybe you've heard of Halftime. This guy says, hey, you play your best game in the fourth quarter. He retired from the oil companies in downtown Oklahoma City, made his money out playing golf, got bored doing it, and now he wants to give back, all right? He's got 40 men and women in my city who are credentialed, well-to-do, all of those kind of things, and I'm going to go find 40 young people, and I'm going to put the two together. You can't teach an old dog a new trick. But if you give them a puppy, they'll both benefit. All right? Yeah. So I'm not kicking us old dogs to the curb. I need you more than ever because our research thrower, you, and went around the world, one of the number one things that we found is all the young people want a spiritual mother and spiritual father. All of them. My son wants one. Even though, yeah, he comes in, he's got, I, we have a family unit and all that stuff. But Satan tells my son, of course your parents love you. They're your parents. But when you speak life into my son, it's a whole other level. So yes, encouragement is free, as you talked about earlier and stuff like that. So be generous with your thankfulness. Be thankful. You know, your time, talent, treasure. You can also be generous with your thankfulness. Just tell some young person, I believe in you. Just show up. Show up. Show up for them. So anyway, you get those five groups together. You have this whole city council. So what would have happened? We're not ready for it. What would have happened when they had released 800 prisoners? They could have made one phone call to this council and said, hey, guys, we're getting released 800 prisoners. Can you help us? They're going to need help with jobs. Because everybody who's in prison needs Jesus and a job, right? Right? And how do you do that? What if you've been in prison for 10 years? The world changed on you pretty dramatically in the last 10 years. 
How do you come alongside and help them? We can do that. You get, you get, you get people with resource, you get anointing, you get influence, you get energy, and you get wisdom together. We'll figure this thing out. So someday, my governor, my mayor is going to make a one phone call, and we're going to be ready. We had to shut 15 schools down in Oklahoma City last year. And the church tried to help, but we could have done more. We could have done a lot more. All right, let's keep moving here. All right. Um, stay on that slide, though. Um, the next one is called Illuminations. Um, February the 5th, 1998, I'm on an airplane headed to Guatemala. And the reason I'm headed to Guatemala, I'm going to a Bible dedication. Many of you know and be familiar with Mardell. That's what I did. I quit school. I did my one semester, and then I quit school to start Mardell when I was 19 in 1981. And so... Um, so anyway, we sold Bibles, and then I found out people didn't have Scripture. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know people didn't have Scripture in their heart language. I figured everybody had a Bible, but I found out, no, they don't, okay? There's 6,000 languages on planet Earth. 2,000 have Scripture. That's incredible. The most, like, Pinocchio is the most translated book. It's like 290. It's about a liar. I mean, you know, and they're, they're in second place, all right? So our book, we're at 2,000. All right, we got 2,000 New Testaments, all right? 2,000, somebody's working on 2,000, nobody's even started so we found out that they translate these Bibles, it takes 10, 15, 20 years, you know, like, oh, man, I don't want to, I can't keep my employees excited that long. I'm a leader, but not that good a leader. You know, hey, hang on, 19 more years, guys, we'll have this thing, you know. So I found out that they had, somebody had to raise money to pay for the printing. I said, oh, okay, we'll help pay for the printing. You mean you'll let us pay for the printing of a first edition Bible you spent 15, 20 years of your life translating? Woo, that's a, you know, if I can go back to my employees, that we can be excited about. So... They said, March, you're paying for these printing, these New Testament. Uh, why don't you come to dedication and just see somebody get their Bible for the first time? Oh, okay, yeah, I have four kids, busy, you know, all that stuff. And finally found the day, so February the 5th, that's why I'm on this airplane. I'm headed down there. And they gave me this sheet of paper. And uh, on this sheet of paper, it tells me that they're the Eastern, Eastern Hockletech, people live in Guatemala, uh, there's 30,000 people that speak the Eastern Hockletech language. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, if you speak a language, you've got to have lots of people. Why would you have a language for only 30,000 people? This is, oh, jeez. Oh, well, here's the good news. 8,000 of them can read. Huh, that's good. Oh. Oh. 1,000 of them are believers. Oh, wow, that's good. Oh. And then they have a fourth category. There's 400 readers who are believers. Oh, jeez. I just spent $20,000 and only 400 people can even read the thing, you know. This is not a good ROI, return on investment. I'm in a business crowd here, right? So you guys know what ROI is. It's not like, so I'm already stewing. I mean, I'm on this flight all the way down there stewing about, oh, geez. Because you want a good story when you go back to your family, right? I mean, you, want, you know, we're doing one hopes at three for a dollar. You know, it's a three for a dollar. Geez, well, this is like, oh, well, the numbers aren't working too good here. 400 for 20,000. So, and then I get to Guatemala City and they say, oh, yeah, they don't, Eastern Hawk, they don't live here. I say, okay, well, where are they? Well, we're going to get us a bus. Okay, that's great. For 10 hours. Oh, geez. You know, on this dirt road that, you know, you're on. I mean, I'm on the bus literally. It's a glory, it was a van. I was in the van. And I'm looking over. There's no ground there. All right. I mean, we're over the edge. I'm like, dude, stay left. Stay left. There's... <laughs> and it's way down there. It is way down there. All right. And then you get to a bridge and you got six cars on that side, six, and they're having to back up. We're having, you know, it's, it was a. So I had a whole other day, though, of return on investment, right? Ah. Uh... Why do I do this? I'm not doing this again. 30,000 speakers, 400 can read. You know, this is ridiculous. So anyway, we get there February the 7th. And so we finally had the ceremony. So I'm now meeting the, the translators. And what the deal was, Wycliffe's model was, is a missionary model. You had to go raise your own money. Wycliffe didn't pay you. You paid Wycliffe to go to work for them. 
You raise your money and send 10% to them. Okay? When you have enough people doing it, home office is paid for. So you go get all your friends to give $50 a month, $60 a month, $100 a month. You know, and, and then when you get your money, you get to go. All right? And so, so now I'm meeting Dennis and Jean, the strut matters. Oh, yeah. On the other thing on the sheet of paper, translation started in 1958. I was born in 1961. This is 1998. 40 years. Same couple? Yep, same couple. Went down there when they were 30 years old. I'm getting ready to go meet some 70-year-olds, okay? They translated the Bible for 40 years or 400 people. Somebody else consoled them because I don't know. Uh, geez, uh, 40 years of your life or 400. I'm, I, I ain't doing this again, you know? Hey, go do another one. See you when you're 110, you know? <laughs> and so... I just don't know how to encourage them. So I meet Dennis and Jean for the first time with all these other donors. And so I see the other bus. I'm on a van, but there's a bus, a big old bus, has like 60 people that are all getting off, and they're all 70 years old. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, these were the donors who gave $50 a month, $100 a month, and now 40 years later, they finally got done, and we're ready to celebrate this thing, right? And I meet them. I shake their hands, and they're all from Oklahoma City. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm on the end of the earth, and y'all are all my neighbors. What, what are y'all doing down here? Well, don't you know Dennis and Jean are from? I said, no, the sheet of paper says U.S. No, no, they got the Metropolitan Baptist Church, five minutes from my house is where these people are based at. So I'm meeting my neighbors. So now I'm meeting Dennis and Jean for the first time, okay? And we're in front of a concrete slab with a chimney. That's all it is. And she was the talkative one. And I said, Jean, what are we all? I mean, we're all around it. I mean, they had, we have 100 people around this thing. And I'm like, what are we doing here? What, what's the big deal? Oh, she said, this is our house. 1977, the guerrillas came and burnt our house down. Because you've got to understand, there was no written language. When these, they wrote a language for the people, translated, and then the guerrillas did not like the fact they were educating people because educated people are harder to take advantage of than uneducated people. And so because of that, they had all that, and that's why it took 40 years. Okay? As a matter of fact, I said, Mark, one time I hid in that 55-gallon drum right over there. And then, okay, and what are we doing? Oh, I did have my flashlight and my Hebrew and my Greek, and I was studying it in this barrel. I'm like, you're bizarre. Get your four kids and go home is what I'm telling you. You know, if people are trying to come and kill you, and she's in there studying. So, uh, and so then we go to this ceremony, and the whole town's, I mean, we're, we got balloons, and we're just walking through town as a big parade. As you can imagine, waiting 40 years. Now, they got the book of Luke and Mark along the way, but for the first time, they're going to get the New Testament in a bound book in their heart language. And they've waited 40 years for this. And Dennis and Jean were the Americans, but they found four Eastern Hocopecs, obviously, to translate with them. So Gaspar was one of the four translators that translated God's word into their heart language. And uh, Gaspar went forward to get his Bible, and this next slide shows what happened. He wept. He wiped away his tears, and he wept. In this moment, the Holy Spirit spoke into my spirit with a very simple question. And I know I didn't put it there. I will, I'm not this self-incriminating. And basically, he asked me, why don't you go tell Gaspar he's not a good ROI? Yeah. That pierced me. Because I've been asking that question for two days. Is this guy a good return on investment? So in one moment, on February the 7th, 1998, when Gaspar wept, I went from, why would anybody do this, to how are we going to make sure all 6,000 pe people that's on planet Earth has God's word in their heart language.
And then I went to a, a painter, and I said, will you paint this picture in a painting? And so this hangs on my wall. It's a four-foot-by-four-foot four painting. As a reminder that one of the reasons I'm on planet Earth is to make sure all 7.7 billion people have God's word in their heart language. I spend about half of my time doing that. So, yeah, thank you. <clears throat> so May the 10th, I called the 10 major uh, Bible agencies. I called five, five resource friends, donor friends. And if we all came together May the 3rd, 2010, and said, guys, if we work together, we can eradicate Bible poverty by 2033. So we believe by faith, um, and this next slide will show in 2033, there should be 8.7 billion people. So if there's 8.7 billion people, I believe that 8.3 billion, that light blue circle around the earth, will have the full testament, Old and New Testament, will have all the scripture in the heart language, which is the ultimate goal. So this is not the ultimate, this is the all-access goal. 99.96, so that's 95% of the world, 8.3 billion. 400 million will have the New Testament, so that gets you to 99.96. And my business friends like you all say, come on, Mark, 99.96, let's round up, that's 100, just go ahead and take that. But you haven't met Gaspar yet, all right? And so that little bitty black line, which I made thicker than it should be, the last 3 million will at least have portions of Scripture by 2033. And so... Uh, but that's the seed of why Illuminations is a part of that. Okay, we better go really fast. Uh, this last one is the Green family. This is my tribe. The two shall become one. No, the two shall become 21, all right? And so uh, we just had a, our, our 21st. There's 20 of them here. You got one hidden in a stroller. So we're at Disneyland with five strollers and five others, you know, so wow. That was, anyway, let's, we'll tell that story another time. So what is, the, what is the seed? What's the passion for this? So a few years ago, our family got together, and we put together a mission, vision, and values for our family. So family life's greatest blessings. So in this document, my sister couldn't let it be an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. You saw what I do, my drawing earlier, that little structure thing. My sister converts it into something nice and pretty and, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, what's the seed? What is, it, what is it that the Green family wants to need them for? So we went back, spent two weekends going through what's our mission. We had it for a business. We'd all done that. But we'd never done it for a family. My parents now are 42. There's 42 of us. 40 of us live in Oklahoma City. And so our family mission statement is to love God intimately and live extravagant generosity. And so that's what we want to be known for, what we want to do, and who we are. And generosity is defined as time, talent, treasure, thankfulness, and even trust. You have equity. You have trust. I use some of my trust. Our family use some of our trust, even at ORU. We wanted to take, hey, here's the trust we have. We feel like this is an institution that can thrive and can move forward. You have trust. You spend that. You can't spend it for everybody, but you can be generous with it, and you can use it. And so, um, so all my family members... Uh, I have a coin. I don't know if they carry it. They should. I gave it to them. But anyway, love God intimately, live extravagant generosity. Every morning I get up, and so I'm reminded of that. I gave them all a Bible, and so they have a Bible uh, with the world on it because we want to impact the world. And so these are, I uh, found this, and so I took the covers off the Bibles and put these on them. There's people who can do that. And so uh, we had somebody marry in the family this year, so my parents were able to give them a document say, here's who we are. We can't force people to do that. We're just saying the river's going this way. The river's going this way. You want a river's going this way. You can swim on the river if you want, but we're going this way. And so uh, I have signatures from all of my family members in my Bible. And so the new member this year, we said, hey, here's a Bible for you, my Bible. And so the new member this year, we said, hey, here's a Bible for you. We'd love to sign yours, and we'd love for you to sign ours as a commitment to each other that God's word is what we're going to build our life on. And so uh, love God intimately. 
live extravagant generosity. All right, next slide. I went through that a whole lot faster than I was going to. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And this is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Lord, I thank you for everyone who is in this room today. Everyone is a seed. Lord, that can produce more seeds. Lord, and you gave us all a gift. They're all different. They're all unique, Lord. But I just pray that you would help us to understand the why. Why are we here on planet Earth? You have a purpose for every single person. And Lord, I pray that they fulfill that, that they take the seed, as small and tiny it is. And Lord, they not only produce fruit, but they produce fruit that has seed that produces more fruit. So Lord, I pray that over each one here today. We pray that all that we would do would be for your glory. Amen. Thank you for the time today.